Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontiers, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, by a Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. That machine's not the problem. It's that the boss still lives inside of you. Bullshit! I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. Hi, I'm Brian. Today's episode is The Phantom Hero, our sixth episode on 2010's Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker. With a lot of our character deep dives out of the way, we can now start to cover a lot more plot ground, especially on horseback. But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes. We know who Meryl marries. We know the fate of Master Kazuhira Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. Snake, that's the chrysalis weapon Huey was referring to. You know what to do. Following his snuff-induced AI pod freakout upon meeting Strangelove, Snake awakens back up in the courtyard of the ruins of Kochi Quetzal. In the distance, a hind carries away the boss's AI pod, and then out of the mist arrives the chrysalis, the second of the four AI weapons. The chrysalis, officially designated TJ Chrysalis 6000, is the lone a- airborne AI weapon of the bunch. The name itself refers to, to a pupil stage that butterflies go through, and the chrysalis itself is designed to look like a butterfly. The Sandinistas refer to it as El Colibri, meaning hummingbird, and the small kidnapper drones it deploys as Chicolibri, little boy hummingbirds. As mentioned, the ship owes much of its shape to a butterfly, but there are other influences at work. The chrysalis is a vertical takeoff landing craft, basically a helicopter with twin propellers located in giant discs on each side of its body. These discs scream Star Trek to me as if something out of the Starfleet. And if you peek at some of the official artwork for this game, the drawings of the chrysalis give it the appearance of a dragon, or dare I say, a fell beast of the Nazgul, all that more accentuated by the railgun looking like a tail. Those are different than dragons. <clears throat> I know. They're wyverns. Yeah, whatever. All, most of the dragons in, in Lord of the Rings are not actual dragons. Oh, God They're worms. <laughs> we can use that to Glorong, transition Glorong to not a was not a dragon. Sorry. <laughs> You're fine. <laughs> we can use that to transition to its weapons and attacks, which again can be targeted and recovered for building your own Metal Gear platform. The railgun is its most powerful attack and can blast through any cover. This is the railgun you'll acquire for Zeke. The chrysalis also has a radome that allows it to deflect missile attacks. The radome and railgun are basically how they appear on Metal Gear Rex from Metal Gear Solid 1. It can launch missiles of its own and has a normal array of cha- chain guns for raining down fire. It also deploys kidnapper drones, which can ensnare Snake in its cables, much like it did Amanda and Chico earlier. And the unmanned nature of the chrysalis means it could perform maneuvers and reach speeds that it would not be able to with a human pilot. When you knock down its life bars or damage the wings, it will ground itself to make repairs. This is when you can pop open the AI pod to end the fight or really deal it some massive damage. There was originally going to be a landing mode for this battle where it could fight on the ground, but that was ultimately cut. In terms of strategy, it's pretty much pelted with missiles and machine gun fire and resupply regularly. As with the pupa, the first couple go-arounds I just focus on the AI pod as that takes the most damage on its shell. In subsequent replays, I will target the other parts of the ship to acquire those parts for Zeke. Yeah, I um, 
I think this is my least favorite of the main bosses just because it's like hard to track and it's the little little guys are really annoying. But it's nothing wrong with it. It actually to me reminds me of uh I guess it's to be the other way around because this game came out after Peace Walker, but there's an enemy in the first XCOM remake, an XCOM enemy unknown called the Cyber Disc. That is that same kind of uh kind of uh seventies sci fi looking like flying robot thing. It's also extremely tough. Um that's sort of what it, what it, just like playing it again, it just looked like a cyber disc, but, um, I don't know. It's, it's a fine enough boss fight. I'm not, I like the, uh, I like the arena. I think it's one of the favorite, my, one of the cooler looking areas you find. And it's just sort of like a lot of these bosses, it's almost too straightforward, but I don't know. I, I'm not, I'm not crazy about the chrysalis. Yeah. I think the one metal gear solid fight, it reminds me of the most is probably the hairier. Mm. Um, just in the way that it's able to shoot across to the other side of the screen or like a, a, essentially remove itself from the player's point of view um, so that, you know, there are long periods where you might not be able to track it or attack it. But um, it's, I mean, I don't dislike this fight. It's just, you know, usually when I'm just like trying to redo these AI fights to gather weapons or chips, this is not usually the one I go for unless I need the rail gun again or something. Mm-hmm. Um, usually I like the cocoon just because it's a big giant piece of shit um, that you can just kind of wail on from all directions yeah. and uh, recover all sorts of parts. You can climb on top of it. Mm-hmm. That's always fun. With the chrysalis defeated, it's time to track down the AI pod. It was airlifted to a mine base 15 miles to Snake's North, But before we get going, it's time for one of our meteor chats with Miller, as Snake is still reeling from the Strangelove encounter and the boss AI, and Kaz is rightfully worried. Kaz's focus seems to be on the boss AI. Can Snake actually go through with it? Can he destroy it? Can he, effectively, kill the boss again and relive those memories? Memories Snake has banished into the deepest, darkest part of his psyche? Snake, I'm worried. Worried? For the same reason the CIA entrusted the nuclear launch to an AI. A man can condemn a handful of criminals to the death penalty if they're prepared to assume that responsibility. But who among us could do the same to hundreds of millions of innocent civilians? Who could reduce thousands of years of human history to ash in an instant? Could any flesh and blood human being make that decision? No way in hell. No one man could bear the burden of total genocide. It's what's allowed our cowardly species to survive all this time. But for a machine, willpower is no issue. I blew my Asongo Vice and Fire load last episode, but I got a little more to dribble out here. Kaz's whole line about condemning men to death is something for which someone has to assume responsibility. It's very Ned Stark, the man who passes the sentence should swing the sword, ethos of execution. If you are going to condemn someone, it should not be done lightly or with a degree of separation. Lord Eddard was referring to using an executioner besides himself. But here in Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker, Coleman and his cohorts are proffering to make a machine the executioner. Miller's lines are so good here. Allowed our cowardly species to survive is such a fascinating way to frame it. Our cowardice is our greatest strength, the fear of ending humanity enough to not do it. Two, all this talk of will and willpower speaks to the burgeoning conflict over the boss's will, of which Snake and Zero or Cypher represent two versions of. But it is also a powerful successor to the themes of MGS4, with the will of Solid Snake at the forefront. And in that game's ending, Big Boss tells Solid Snake that the boss's will had long since been removed from the system. 
Here and now, we start to see the process of the boss's will being removed from the AI programs that will eventually become the Patriots. Kaz and Snake zoom in, past the impending nuclear retaliation matrix, and on Snake's own personal trauma. You've left everything behind. Your country, your identity, your past and ideals. But there's still one thing you haven't let go of. What are you talking about? The boss. You still haven't let her go. That's why you're so afraid to find out the truth about her. And that's what's holding you back from your future. Snake, she died a decade ago. How long can you live with a ghost? It's not just that Snake hasn't really recovered from Operation Snake Eater. It's that Strangelove's questioning has made him question the events in a way that he hadn't before. He took Eva's debriefing at its word, and to be fair, Eva's debriefing was on the money. But now he's worried that that was part of the web of lies and system of control, the narrative they gave Big Boss so he wouldn't uh, go off and start his own paramilitary force and seek vengeance against the U.S.? Yeah. So Snake rides off seeking the truth, but the question will be, can Snake handle the truth? You want to know the truth? Huh? The truth won't change the past. You still want to know? No. I took on this mission for a kid who believes in peace. The Chapter 3 title card flashes on screen, A Nation Reborn, and we catch up with Snake riding for a mining village on the boss's horse. The horse may be over 20 years old, but he still appears to have at least one more battle left in him. Snake feels some part of the boss still lives on within the horse, and well, hold on to that thought for an upcoming snake trauma. In previous episodes, we talked about American companies treating Latin America as its own treasure trove or backyard so that it could run extractivist activities to put the natural resources of those nations into America's hands. Mining rights would be sold by crooked officials to foreign companies, leading to the influx of outside capital. Factories and mines would be set up, polluting local lands and water sources, and displacing thousands of people. All this is explicitly discussed in the briefing tapes for this mission, which again, love to see this sort of ideology in a Western game. Or just like this kind of actual history. Yeah. Um, I think we mentioned it previously, like at this point when this game is taking place in the actual real life history, it's it's not stuff that I covered in like my most advanced history classes in high school. Um, and I took every AP class I could and not to be one of those gifted kid weirdos, but um, like basically once we won World War II um, and you're taught that the nuclear bomb drops were very necessary and good and important, um, then it's basically like fast forward to the end of the school year and you don't do anything. Maybe you talk about the Cold War a little. Yeah. They don't really talk about Vietnam because they, they'd have to talk about Agent Orange and the Ho Chi Minh Trail and all that. So, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember this is, this is, this will be a fun Metal Gear tangent for us. Um, after we wrapped up World War II, which was near the end of our like AP US history semester, whatever course year. Um, and at that point, you're just kind of like doing practice stuff for the Mm -hmm. AP test at the end of the year. But, uh, to make up, you know, regular class time, our, we basically had one assignment post-World War II. It's basically pick any date between like 1945 and 1998 or nine, um, and then just like write a newspaper spread about all the news, news stories going on in that day or around that day or whatever. Um, I chose like 1973 because there was some Vietnam, there was all the Watergate stuff. 
But the date I ended up picking for my newspaper project was April 30th, uh, which is a pretty valuable Metal Gear date, now that I think about it. Mm -hmm. This would be before Metal Gear Solid 2 came out, though. So this wasn't a brain-poisoning choice on my part. Um, This was just legit coincidence. After a single map mission through the mining village, Snake arrives at the mine base just in time to watch Peace Walker lowered into it. It's very volcano-based from You Only Live Twice. Immediately, he's spotted by a kidnapper drone, and we find ourselves in a full-on firefight. The arena is basically an amphitheater. The mine base is wide in the middle, with tiered rafters rimming its exterior. Enemy troops will pour out of multiple doorways located on these different levels. The troops are all extremely well-armed, with a mix of assault rifles, grenades, sniper rifles, and rocket launchers. Some will rush Snake's position, others will take sniping positions far off in the distance. There's about 25 enemies in total you have to neutralize, and they come in waves of four to five soldiers. I actually really like the uh, the mining village. You know, I'm sad you don't do as yeah, much you- with it. I think this time because it... it um. <laughs> It honestly had this almost the identical aesthetic and like not layout because it's smaller, but it, it honestly looks like a map in in a in death loop. So I just was oh. thinking of that when I was playing it, and I was like, "Ooh, I wish I could kick people off of the this rooftop and uh, and kill a guy with a guitar." But um, uh, yeah, the mining village is fun, and then the base. Like I, I feel like this is an area that they could have could have been used a little more, and I'm sure it was used a little more in some of the co-op stuff that we'll get to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I like about this mining village is it has a lot of verticality and I don't just mean like stairs and like ladders and rooftops but just like the land itself is slanted on a hill mm-hmm. there's a lot of tight corners alleys um, so it's not like some of the jungle maps are pretty wide open where you can just throw on your night vision goggles and see where everyone is um, here there are just a lot of like guys right around corners or patrolling a rooftop that it's really hard to maneuver without really just letting them kind of lay out what their like circuit is like their Mm -hmm. patrol circuit Mm -hmm. and then figuring out where to move it is one of the maps when we get into the zadornov missions at the end that they use again as well Um, but i think they could have definitely done some more either extra ops or they could have used this map a little more in the story itself i think Hmm. it's a denser map than i think usual i think that's what i like about it even for my metal gear standards yeah there's like six to seven enemies uh, in one map, um, there's all sorts of buildings, at least five to six separate like edifices. There's just a lot in here. There's a certain there's certain rooms you can go inside of. There's doors and stuff like that. Um, I think there's also like some documents you can find in this level, um, just like hidden behind doors or on top of rooftops. So it's a pretty like rich area for just being a single map. Um, as for the mine base battle, um, this one, I mean, I, I don't think it's like terribly difficult, but it is one of the things that's like super impossible um, if you're trying to S mm-hmm. rank it until you get like much more powerful weapons. Because one of the issues, not issues, but one of the shortcomings of this game, I guess that's the same thing as an issue, is um, you can't shoot while lying down. So there's no great way to really shoot sniper rifles in this game. There's mm-hmm. no pentazamine. Um, so basically your trigger finger or like your steadying hand is always kind of shaking a little bit and you just kind of have to time it right and hope for the best. Um, there's no like you can just pick them off um, while lying down. So that makes it hard to really do this fight non-lethally super early on. You basically need the battle dress. You need to have every non-lethal weapon you could possibly have. And you probably have to just go up and CQC as many people as you can too. Mm-hmm. So 
Um, but it's 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 good to have these occasional just shootouts. Um, there's no stealth involved. You can just take whatever weapons, uh, assault rifles and rocket launchers, and just go to town. Oh ho ho! But we aren't done. After you clear the sentries, we immediately enter into our third AI weapon battle, the Cocoon. Official designation: TR Cocoon Seven Thousand. The Sandinistas called it the called it a beetle in their language, El Escarabajo. The Cocoon is essentially a mobile fortress. It borrows design elements from the Land Cruiser P-1000 Rate, a Nazi tank design that was too big to be practical, as well as the Bagger Bucket Wheel Excavator, a giant piece of equipment used for quarry mining, which, you know, we are in a mine. And the combination of Nazi science and resource extraction technology, well, that sums up post-World War II American foreign policy as well as anything, right? Anyway, yeah, Mobile Fortress. It's the most heavily armored and weaponed of the AI weapons, though more limited in its mobility. It has chain guns decorating its entire exterior, a heavy cannon in front, and hedgehog mortars, usually an anti-submarine weapon, that will harangue Snake throughout the battle. As the cocoon takes damage, ladders will fall loose at its side, which will allow Snake to climb up and eventually target the AI pod as required. When on the cocoon, Snake will also have to contend with a mechanized arm equipped with a chainsaw, which will sweep the weapon's exterior. I don't know if I like the cocoon. I don't know. The cocoon is just tedious to me sometimes, but I do like, I think I, we mentioned earlier how you can climb all over it and attack it from different directions. I think it's more just uh, that one. I know, this time it was fine with me, but the first time I went through this game, it took me so long to beat. I think I just didn't quite have the rhythm down of, of getting resupplies and all that. It took me, it was like half an hour to beat it but there's also like a lot less cover here Mm -hmm. um so like unless you're like right on the machine like it can pretty much hit you with like some the its main cannon is really strong um and then its missiles can be hard to avoid as well just because you don't have a lot of because of the amount of real estate the cocoon takes up in the middle of the arena Mm -hmm. you don't have a lot of wiggle room uh depending on where you get um and even the tiered rafters, like there are like fences there that will prevent your progress and you might just get cut, caught in a corner. It's not, I, I think the pupa is, is the best of the three, I think pretty easily to me. Yeah. And it's the Shagohan, which. Yeah. <clears throat> maybe it's that's not a cool. cool it's not, it like cool, uh, really aggressive attacks. It, it's just the most, it has the most character. The other two just kind of float around or just sit around to me, but they're still, they're still solid enough boss fights. And they're repurposed um, we, pretty well for the later stuff, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we will uh, probably talk about these a little more in depth from a gameplay standpoint in a later episode. One comment I want to make now, just because I'm not sure I'll be able to get to it in terms of me playing this game, is that um, as you you know beat the game and start unlocking all the extra missions and Chapter 5 stuff, you, stu- you, do, you do start getting extra ops that are basically harder versions of these AI machines. Um, usually it's just like, pupa battle two is like the first one but then you'll get uh another one that'll be like pupa custom battle Mm -hmm. and those custom battles i just want to highlight because usually those custom uh what's it called uh versions of the ai weapons have extra weapons on them that you can that like you know with these existing ones that you can destroy and then attach to your own metal gear zeke but um you know those are weapons that are not available through the main story mission versions of the ai battles The cocoon's destruction bears an additional boon. 
It disables the security on the outer gate of the mine base, and Snake is able to sneak his way in. Inside the base hangar, Snake will spy other AI prototypes, mostly resembling the pupa. These are just for show, but could be headcanoned into being the extra ops or custom model versions that I just discussed. Anyway, Snake avoids the guards and makes his way down an elevator. He'll spy Coldman and Doctor Strange wrapping up a conversation about Peace Walker's final checks before they all retire off-screen. Snake makes for the AI pod and begins to question it about Selino Yarsk and Snake's decade-old trauma. The AI pod doesn't have an answer. That mission debriefing hadn't yet been supplied to the mammal pod since Strangelove is still trying to create context for it. Listen to me. I have to know. Did you defect the Soviet Union of your own free will? There is no mission record matching that description. Ah. Jack, you're not the boss. The boss is dead. Don't do it, Jack. Drop your weapon, big boss. Peace Sentinel, led by Coleman and Strangelove, have trapped Snake. A lot of our Coleman backstory comes from this cutscene. His involvement in Operation Snake Eater, his hatred for the boss, which admittedly makes him a strange bedfellow for Strangelove, though does explain her willingness later on to throw in with Snake at Snake. She's only in it to learn about the boss. Coleman does the, vil- the villain monologuing bit here. Not only will Peace Walker be the perfect deterrent, but it will also allow America to be proactive in Latin America imperializing. Peace Walker will be deployed all along the Caribbean coast, effectively warding off any communist or socialist proxies in the region. And to achieve his goals, Coleman needs to eliminate MSF and Big Boss. The age of heroes is over, buried alongside the boss and her bankrupt beliefs. From now on, our only heroes will be machines. Surely no one understands that better than you, except perhaps your partner. A deterrent for hire. An army without borders. You've invented a new system, too. And an admirable one at that. That's supposed to be an offer. I'm not offering anything. If I'm to sell my new system, you and yours have got to go. Strangelove asks to take custody of Snake. She needs him to complete the mammal pod. Snake is knocked out and dragged away. The past is about to come to life once more, and in more than one way. First, we have another flashback to the final fight with the boss. A lot of the same sound clips we've been hearing come back. Loyalty to your country, or loyalty to me. Only thing we can trust with absolute certainty is the mission, etc. and so forth. But then the past comes to life in an all-too-real way. Strangelove douses Snake with water, and he comes too, realizing he's strung up exactly like Colonel Volgan had him ten years ago. And Strangelove is about to go to town on him with two ticklers, or laughing rods as she calls them. A song of ice and fire tangent. The torturer Arya contends with in Harrenhal is known as the tickler. The player will have to endure three rounds of torture, intermixed with Strangelove's questions. As Strangelove looks for the truth of the boss, the player will need to tap the action button repeatedly to stay alive. Your normal health bar from gameplay is visible during this 2D cutscene. I admittedly really suck at this, both on my PlayStation and Brian's Xbox. And usually I have to whip out a pencil to repeatedly tap the button, especially the third round, which lasts significantly longer than the first two. 
Yeah, uh, I had to do that for this time, for the third round this time. I did it, I remember doing it originally on my 360, but I think I hurt my thumb doing it. I, I just had like a strong memory of hurting my thumb doing that, so I just didn't, didn't even try this time. I cheated, I cheesed it, but I'm okay at that stuff. It's I, I couldn't do it, I could never do it on MGS1 because I just think the PS1 controller is not designed to be friendly to human hands. It's like doing the uh. Like doing mini games in Mario Party One, just like mm-hmm. rip all the skin off of your palm by spinning this big, weird ridged uh, analog stick and and lighting your hand on fire. It was like you're, but yeah, that stuff. You know that with Mario Party, I feel like that was just pure sadism. But with you know, like it's supposed to be difficult. It's just like the torture scene in MGS One. It's supposed to be physically taxing for you and for Snake. So you know that's just another little. Uh, what would be the word? Not ontological. What am I thinking of? It's just another little like way of tying in, tying you to the characters. I feel like that's a it's a neat little bit. I just don't want to see it very often. It hurts yeah. and, and to do. They're they're usually good about one a game at most. It's mm-hmm. not. Um, I mean, three segments, but, you know, actually, it's not like a game full of events like this. And no. I'll admit, I've always sucked at stuff like this. I remember having, like, the original track and field on NES, and to do, like, the 40-meter dash or whatever, you have to basically just alternate tapping A and B as fast as you can to pump mm-hmm. your legs. And I just, I've always sucked at, like, quick mashing buttons. I'm not, um, like, I'm able to, it just, I'm not fast enough, or I don't have the endurance, or maybe I'm just mentally weak, who knows. Um one thing I like um, talking about the story here is that it actually feels like like the last couple times with the big torture sequences, it's often been just for the point of sadism, um, whether it's Volgan or Ocelot and MGS2 torturing Raiden. They're not really trying to get anything out of him. No. Um, a lot of it is just here, I'm going to fucking ruin you uh, because you ruined the Cobras. And I mean, they, you know, there are some questions like, does Naked Snake know about the Philosopher's Legacy? But it is not... It is not interrogation. It is merely the sadism in the last couple of torture rounds. Whereas this one, Doctor Strangelove is like, I don't want to do this, but I actually yeah. She doesn't need seem to like she's very uh, in- excited by the idea. Yeah, um, and it also plays a little bit in. You know, we talk about both soldiers and scientists as pitiable figures, and Strangelove is kind of framing it as you know, I'm forced to do this because of the circumstances or the times or whatever. This is not something I normally go in for, but I need this information. So um, I guess it does speak to like scientists' pursuit of knowledge and the Mm -hmm. ethics of how they get it, I guess, as well. Snake sticks to his guns, though, giving Strangelove the official story as it had been fed to him, just like before. This isn't just about Snake's trauma anymore, though. He specifically doesn't want to give Strangelove any info that will help her resurrect the boss. We'll drop in some of that dialogue now before we transition to our next sequence. I think specifically, too, um, he doesn't like I think because this happens just after he tries to question the, the AI. I think he does not believe that it is the, like it could be the boss in any way. So he's just trying to spare himself and Strangelove and everyone the trauma of having her come back because it's not her. I feel like, like, I feel like he, I was thinking about this a lot because it's one of the most interesting, I really expected him to just straight up tell Strangelove what happened, but, um, cause you think you, you'd assume at the end of three, you'd assume that, uh, he would really like having someone else to commiserate with, to, to someone else to share this with, so he could bounce it off of them and, and like 
try and grasp what she did, but he doesn't do that with Strange Love. And I think the biggest reason is that he doesn't believe. Like, I think he even is accepting that it's not healthy for them to be this fixated on the boss. So he's just trying to break it off. And I don't know. It's a very, it's one of the more character wise. I think it's just an interesting choice that he would, maybe he feels he needs to be tortured. Like, I don't know. It's, it's, there's a lot to it. I feel like it's one of the better scenes in the game. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think this really is kind of where like that inflection point that will lead to him kind of giving up the boss's dream, letting Mm -hmm. go of the bandana, letting the boss quote unquote, kill herself by drowning the Peace Walker AI in the end. Like, I think that part of the character really starts cementing itself now. Well, then um, all, like it's, I, I wanted to mention that because it's also important that he's wrong. He thinks because it, it the boss, this, this version of the, of the boss does not understand, you know, she hasn't been, she doesn't have the debriefing stuff. So she doesn't have the answers he actually wants. He just assumes it's not, her soul mm-hmm. is not there. But like, I think we're supposed to assume that the boss's will or her soul, or however you want to phrase that, is there somehow, in some way? Yeah, we'll, which, we'll talk. Which, which I think, on. I think isn't even. I mean, it's we've already met dead characters, so it's not really that's not really a far far fetched thing for the series. Yeah, I think it actually it's kind of like more like is the meme of the boss alive mm-hmm. in the pod as opposed to like oh this is the boss and I mean no one thinks it's the boss reborn again. It's obviously a giant walking bug machine i, I think um, will is the right word i think her will because mm-hmm. it, it does it you know it makes a heroic choice at the end of the game would you see your beloved boss brought back to life then say it say she died for america that she remained true to the end gave her life for the country that betrayed her time and again no that woman was a traitor. Why? For what purpose? She went to her grave, cursing her country. Why? Who is it? What are you protecting? I'm not helping you finish that thing. Face it. The boss is dead. Whatever's inside that machine, it isn't her. You come to in a prison cell. Shades of Shadow Moses and Grad. Before you get moving, Snake has another chat with Kaz, who is relieved that Big Boss is still alive. Snake, for his part, says he'll just smoke through the pain, which is a mood, as the kids say. In more distressing news, Kaz can't locate Paz or Galvez. They're both especially suspicious of Galvez, since it seems the CIA knew Big Boss was on their tail every step of the way. And this is where the snake scar adorning Snake's chest comes into play. Everyone has been teasing him that he decorated his body with the same scar the boss had, but in this moment, it reveals itself as a diamond-bladed jigsaw. Hop over to the mirror in Snake's cell, and the player will be prompted to whip it out. With it, you can jimmy open your cell and make your way out. There will also be a concurrent side mission unlocked at this time, in which another MSF member can recover Snake's gear while Snake busies himself with escaping the detention center. Once escaped, it's on to the Peace Walker hangar proper, where Snake finds Paz in the clutches of Coleman and Strangelove. Not only do they have her captive, but they have completed the mammal pod. Despite Snake's refusal to talk during the enhanced interrogation, Strangelove was still able to find the truth. Snake's mission was to kill the boss, and the boss's mission was to be killed by Snake. She was loyal to the end, and Snake was loyal to her in the end. 
With the AI pod ready, Coleman clues Snake in on his first target. Since Snake was reluctant to provide them with the boss's last mission, he has chosen to test Peace Walker's destructive power against his home planet of Alderaan. Sorry, wait, no, that's Tarkin. But Coleman is targeting Big Boss's rebel base, or mother base, rather. You see, I've already selected Peace Walker's initial target, an offshore area in the Caribbean. The trade winds will scatter the fallout all over the surrounding region. Crops and fish will die, leaving plenty of free hands to help us mass-produce Peace Walker. Oh, and wouldn't you know, someone's gone and built a pesky little fortress there. Now who would do that? And right in the middle of the target zone, too. Oh well, all the better to test the warhead, C.E.P. You bastard! I wonder who'll miss a ragtag band of pirates all the way out in the middle of the Caribbean. But first, we're going to prove to the White House that our baby can travel the Caribbean coast on its own. The whole world will know of Peace Walker's versatility. They'll witness the birth of a deterrent that can penetrate both communist and guerrilla-controlled territory, traverse any kind of terrain, and deliver a nuke anywhere it needs to go. Untouchable. Unstoppable. The perfect deterrent. Keeping with our extremely leftist analysis of this game, Coleman's plan is instructive in terms of how American colonial projects work. They often have disastrous environmental effects, much like Coleman's plan to contaminate the entire Caribbean ecosystem. But perhaps more importantly, it will free up labor which would otherwise be allocated to fishing and maintaining the environment. This force of desperate labor is intrinsic to the imperial project, freeing up hands to instead work for the betterment of American bottom lines, whether locally or as refugees, immigrants coming back to the U.S. as cheap, exploitable labor. Um, I just want to uh, shout out one of my favorite uh, leftist books, uh, Disposable Domestics by Grace Chang, which specifically, it focused primarily on uh, women domestic workers, but it specifically ties how American imperialism abroad, whether it's the Philippines, Latin America, anywhere in the world, how that creates an inflow of labor from the countries we're destroying to come to America to be cheap, exploitable labor that we'll often see in roles such as nurses or doulas or midwives or various roles like that. Mm-hmm. Um, again, often in the domestic realm of you know the labor force. I was just going to say that reminds me, because <clears throat> I was just doing some reading over the last week or so about the Irish potato famine and how um, the initial year of the famine, again, because it was famines are man-made, um, was that it, it, the uh, Britain was able to supply secretly supply the, the the island with cheap U.S. cornmeal and and keep you know some people alive. Like it wasn't a complete disaster. And then a new prime minister came in, whose decision was it to uh, to instruct Ireland in in economics by making them work, work. Basically they stopped selling all these, they started selling these things at cost. They started selling them everything at like market values and they just went full laissez-faire explicitly because they figured like, I guess the, 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 the um, rationale was they'll, they'll either learn to work or they'll leave and come here and become our, you know, become cheap industrial labor or they'll Mm -hmm. die and guess which one they did. (laughs) I mean, any of them would have been acceptable, but I'm guessing they died. (laughs) Yeah, or they and they fled to 
you know, 40% of the population of the, the, the country either died or went to America or Canada where they didn't, where they were fine. Nothing happened to them there. They were nothing. They, they definitely did not get uh, thrown into slums in, in Northeastern cities and, you know, have huge, they didn't have 25 to 30% of the people die in the crossing because they were put in uh, like little unventilated, basically brigs and ships. And, you know, it, it's just, you know, great. Thanks, Britain. Good job. I hesitate um, to use the the phrase, the phrase genocide because I think that's uh, different. I mean, certainly they were racist and, and religious. Like I'm certainly, I'm, I'm not going to say the Protestants didn't care if Catholics died, but also like a genocide, I feel like is more directed and more like I don't know. I don't know. It's it's it was a, it was a bad situation, but I'm just thinking of that because of how the Irish reviewed and still are viewed. By the rest of the, by the UK specifically, but by also by the rest of Europe as just like cheap labor. They always were. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, viewpoint definitely got imported into America, especially in the 1800s and early 1900s as well. Well, in the 1850s when, when the Irish came over in droves mm-hmm. because of Black 47 and because of the Irish potato famine. Yeah. And there's another aspect to all this in that when America imperils all these countries, and I know you you're, you weren't specifically talking about American imperialism. No. But so, somehow- British imperialism the, is not a, it's, you know, it's its brother. We, we picked up the meme from them. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I want to mention this because it's topical because it, right now it's February 11th, uh, 2022, and we are seeing news items about massive amounts of money, billions of dollars being forced from Iraq and Afghanistan mm-hmm. into American hands, even though we destroyed their country. Um, that is another big part of this like neoliberal project of American foreign policy is that we go in, we devastate these countries, um, we take all their natural resources and we you know, sell them off to the highest visitor, visitor privatizing them. And then we put those governments basically officially indent, whether it's directly to the US or the IMF or something like that, um, so that we destroy their country. And now they become essentially economic chattel to American empire. Um, the only way out is with you know America holding their hand and allowing them to do so. And even then, it's usually done with punishment for the poor and not great material conditions for people in those countries. Um, I kind of think America is bad. I don't, I don't know. I'm guessing anyone listen. The good thing is we're 40 episodes or 43 episodes into our Metal Gear Solid (laughs) analysis with a very leftist uh, vantage point. So anyone listening now is probably on board with us with this, especially for this game. You better be because there's nothing else to talk about but this. Yeah, that's that's the thing. That's why we're kind of blazing through a lot of the gameplay stuff because like it's not it's good it's good but it's not that it's not the main event here. Yeah. I mean, I, I think Peace Walker is a great game, but when you want to talk about what, if you wanted to argue this is the best Metal Gear Solid game, I think its story um, is definitely where you probably want to start with mm-hmm. that argument. Coleman monologues about how other countries are becoming nuclear powers and will also need Peace Walker to stay in the game. It will be a world controlled by nukes, not unlike what Vulgan said 10 years prior, or Skullface will say 10 years hence. With the stakes kicked up into the stratosphere, Peace Walker is deployed and begins its march to Nicaragua. Snake meets it in the rock quarry in which he fought the cocoon. Snake fires on the walking tank platform, and it immediately turns itself around. 
Its self-defense module has been engaged, and Snake is now its priority target. We now enter the first of two Peace Walker battles. Well, there's three, but only two are actual battles. The Peace Walker mech, designated AL Aurelia 8000, has two modes. A bipedal mode similar to Metal Gear models, and a quadruped mode for traversing rougher terrain and covering more ground. In this first battle, it will be in walker mode. The second later on, it will be on all fours. Should be noted that Peace Walker's bipedal mode very closely resembles the Metal Gear and Metal Gear D designs of the MSX era games, which is a nice touch. The giant boxy missile array up top gives it this effect specifically. Meanwhile, both Metal Gear Zeke and Sahelanthropus in Metal Gear Solid 5 bear more resemblance to Metal Gear Rex. Peace Walker is armed with an H-bomb for self-destruct purposes, in case it is needed to crawl somewhere and detonate. This is also a failsafe against enemies destroying the Peace Walker platform if threatened. Peace Walker is governed by the two AI pods, which we've already discussed. The mammal pod contains the boss's AI and governs all high-level decision-making. The reptile pod is the brainstem, or cerebellum, governing lower-level functions and action. In addition to its weapons and nuclear capabilities, Peace Walker can also remote into NORAD and other defense networks. This allows it to monitor, interpret, and manipulate nuclear warnings being communicated elsewhere. Among its small threat suppression weapons are a flamethrower, missile launcher, drill missiles, S-mines, and a radiation generator which scrambles missiles and rocket attacks. We've talked about Chico calling it El Basilisco, meaning King of Snakes. But I also want to go back to 79 AD and Pliny the Elder's Natural History, which has the first account of basilisks. The main point of interest is this. It was formerly a general belief that if a man on horseback killed one of these animals with a spear, the poison would run up the weapon and kill not only the rider, but the horse as well. Which, you know, foreshadows what's going to happen to the boss's horse here in a minute. Basilisks also supposedly had the power to turn all that look added into stone, which, sorry to use this example, you can actually see in Harry Potter 2, The Chamber of Secrets, and the basilisk in there. The basilisk, this basilisk, the Peace Walker, also has an immobilization, immobilization ray that it deploys to create the same effect of creating stillness. So this battle takes place in the same quarry that we mentioned you fought the cocoon in, and the Peace Walker is far more mobile, though you're probably going to spend most of your time on the lower levels in this battle. Um, Mm. How do you approach this one, Brian? That's what I did. I just kind of... I don't really remember my first time fighting it, because I think I kind of blended them together, but I just did this the other day, and it's... um, I just kept running around. (laughs) I don't really know how to describe it. It was pretty simple. Like, I think... um, it being in the same area as the cocoon, I think it's a better fight than cocoon, but it, it, was, mm-hmm. it was easy to just sort of go to the same spots and, and pot shot and, and then run away and pot shot. And, it, you know, it just kind of whittled down. It was a pretty straightforward boss fight. I think the second one is the, the one I think of more with Peace Walker mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. Yeah, for sure. Um, this is definitely, I wouldn't call this not a boss battle, but definitely has more of that encounter feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the Peace Walker battle over in Nicaragua is going to be like the main event. You even um, this I, is like, like I definitely the first time did not assume this was the end of the game. So mm-hmm. um, there's just a lot open still with the characters. Yeah. Um, like we haven't seen Galvez in almost two acts now, um, or two chapters rather. So um, you kind of know that this isn't the point or like the ending of the game at this point. 
Snake damages Peace Walker just enough, and it starts to freak out a bit. Coleman, aboard a hind with Paz and Strangelove in tow, opens fire on Peace Walker to draw its attention, and then flies to the original destination in Nicaragua, a U.S. CIA coastal base. Peace Walker, like a good dog, gets on all fours and follows obediently. Huey lets Snake know that Peace Walker can make 25 miles per hour on land. Snake bets the boss's horse can do 20 even at its old age. Our last major 2D interactive segment occurs next. We control Snake on the horse, mushing him along in pace with Peace Walker through fields and forests. Peace Walker will drop S-mines to molest Snake, and you'll also have to avoid falling trees along the way. Snake gives a good chase, and damn, that horse can get it, but in the, or- in the end, it's not enough. The horse turns an ankle on a sheer rock face and falls down to the ground, its last race run. Snake climbs the rest of the cliff himself, only to see Peace Walker safely swimming across the Rio San Juan. Snake asks Kaz, why would the CIA want Paz? As insurance against the KGB and maybe MSF, Kaz surmises. She might have useful information about both organizations, and uh, the KGB and MSF may be hesitant to blow it all up if it puts uh, Paz's life at risk. The task now is for Snake to save her on his own. Amanda comes to aid next. She's been in contact with the Guerra Popular Prolonganda, or GPP, her old compas back in Nicaragua. She has learned where Coleman is stationed and even has a route Snake can take to get into the country. Huey says it'll take a couple days to prep Peace Walker for launch, which will coincide with the SALT 2 talk scheduled in Vladivostok. SALT stands for Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty. We are now entering the fourth chapter, The Illusion of Peace. But before we can show down with Coleman and Peace Walker, we have to give a tearful goodbye to the boss's horse. With its leg shattered, it has no hope, and Snake is once again the only one who can pull the trigger. In a somehow truly affecting scene, we watch as Snake puts a bullet into the horse's head, intermixed with his memories of Operation Snake Eater 10 years ago. He's killing the boss all over again. In a way, Kaz was right, saying Snake would have to do this, but it's not the AI, but her horse. As the game cuts between Snake killing the horse now and the boss 10 years ago, it's cut with the TV broadcast signal, which is this game's main menu. Eva also makes her debut in this game of sorts, as her narration from Snake Eater leaks into this scene as well. So as I put in the notes, Brian, what are your thoughts on horse murder? I love horse murder. It's great. Um, Horse murder is my best friend. Uh, no, this is a great scene. I don't really know what else to really say about it. It's kind of straightforward, but it's, I think it's the, yeah, I would say it's the emotional climax of the story, the way it's designed, because like, this is, this is a thing that like, like you said, it's been building up the whole game that he's going to have to do this to the boss. And then he does it here. Technically, like he kind of puts it behind him to an extent. He kind of buries the boss again, comes to terms with it by I guess it's, I guess that's like a, a psychotherapy, like trauma therapy, but, um, cause he does seem if I do feel like he's a little more, um, determined after this to like actually destroy Peace Walker and stop all this and stop Coldman. Whereas I feel like, especially this last chapter two, and chapter three, he's just kind of waiting to figure out almost like he's waiting for the boss to tell him what to do. I almost feel like that's what's going on, but yeah, here he, he kind of does it, gets it out of the way, and I feel like he becomes more 
see, I want to say more determined and heroic, but you could also say more hardened and dead. Mm-hmm. More of a demon, you might say. That's I don't know who would say that. That's maybe from some other game. But uh, I don't know. I, I think it's it's sort of the arc, definitely the the cap of his arc, of Snake's arc in this game. Because the rest of the stuff that happens in this is sort of dealing with Peace Walker. And then it's like all the all the, the Paz and, and Zadornov stuff is more like plot stuff that Snake's not really like that. He's interested in it, but he's not like, it's not like a, it doesn't have, a, it's not, a, it doesn't have an effect on his character really. Right. So I've, this is kind of his, or his peak in the game. And I think it's, it's one of the better scenes, just like the yeah. uh, torture one. These are the ones that, these are the ones I think specifically, I, we talked before about how this game doesn't have the lip sync. I think these are the kinds of scenes that are really, really helped by it because you don't get, as much as we, we enjoy them, you don't get like the really confusingly worded, long-winded villain speeches in this. You just get like pretty simple language and pretty affecting, like straightforward, just, I mean, it, it's just, it's really good. I don't know. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it doesn't have a lot of Kojima's worse instincts as a right like a lot of his a lot of his lesser instincts don't really come out here and it's more just it is in a way i guess um piggybacking off of uh like he like you know the rest for the rest of the series he he realizes that the end of snake eater is probably the best thing he ever did so he just sort of milks it but that's fine with me i don't know <laughs> i love snake eater yeah there's a couple things i think i think you hit it right on the point i do think like Snake's arc kind of ends when he gives up the boss's bandana, but this mm. is like the climax of his arc because yeah, yeah. this is where um, this is where like the boss flashbacks start stop happening. These mm. are the last of them, really. I mean, they talk about the boss in the ending, but you're no longer reliving those memories or going through those QT CQC scenes. Um, this is the T-C. emotional <laughs> emotional catharsis for Snake. Um, it, this is kind of the purge. Um, I know you mentioned that this is kind of like his most heroic moment, but at the same time, this is kind of what kills him inside and maybe sets up where he's going to be in Metal Gear Solid Five. I, I meant more like after this, he's more, uh, he's more like Solid Snake. <laughs> he's more like determined to finish the mission and more like just, just going to put his head down and go through it than he is like hemming and hawing and, and having, you know, emotions and, and, and second thoughts about things. And he kind of kills all that here. Which is yeah, it's. I said. I said. Partly, he becomes more outwardly heroic, but he's also more like, more like Solid Snake. I feel like like that's that's a Solid Snake character trait. It's just to sort of ignore your emotions and ignore any sort of healing and just push down and complete the mission. Yeah. Uh, which speaking of something I thought about recently, which has nothing to do with Peace Walker, but I never really pieced together how the end of Metal Gear Solid 3 where uh, Snake kills the boss might have been something that, uh, or uh, Kojima might have realized that it's kind of a similar to what happened with Solid Snake and Sniper Wolf, that he could take that scene and make it like the full emotional climax of the game, mm-hmm. um, even though it's kind of also was like Snake's like big turning point in Metal Gear Solid 1. Um, but I think he, I think there's a lot of similarities in that scene that I don't think we highlighted when we covered Metal Gear Solid 3, but for some reason they're starting to come to my mind now. Well, almost in but a yeah. way, almost in a way, killing Cyber Wolf wakes Snake up. Mm-hmm. Like it snaps him out of that sort of like zombified, like just mission focused. Like he becomes much more philosophical from that point in that game. 
He becomes like a, the most complete human being. Yeah, it's like a weird, almost like a, a like a U curve, almost like like killing the or killing this, like killing the boss this time, killing the boss's horse sends one snake sort of into it just like hardens him and makes him more of like a, an efficient soldier. And then I killing Cyberwolf kind of pulls Solid Snake out of that almost. And he becomes Philosopher King Solid Snake, who's the second best character in the series. After um, great fun. Emotion, after crying emotional boy, uh, big boss, <laughs> um, sad boy, one thing, big boss. Yeah. One thing I'm also thinking about is these are like LJ big boss. Th- <laughs> uh, some of the few acts of mercy that mm. any of the snakes perform, both Sniper Wolf and the horse, like killing the boss, that's, you know, that's the mission. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but here, killing the horse or killing Sniper Wolf or giving her the death blow, rather, it's not an act of violence in the traditional way that Snake kills people. It's not like part of his mission or just him mowing down people, which to be fair, he doesn't do a ton of, but it's an act of mercy um, that becomes an inflection point for the character, which mm-hmm. I think is key. It's not violence for the sake of doing violence kind of thing. Anyway, we'll cut off there for today, with Chapter 4, our next mission for next time out. While it's hard to give you horse audio, here's a sound clip from the goodbye to the boss's horse to wrap up for the day. All that's left for you to take is my life, by your own hand. One must die, and one must live. No victory, no defeat. The survivor will carry on the fight. The one who survives will inherit the title of boss. Kill me. Kill me now. There's only room for one boss. And one snake. That's mission complete for this episode. Our frequency is podcastsoundsfrontiers at gmail.com and at podsoundsfront on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast by signing up for my Patreon, patreon.com slash manuclearbomb, which goes towards this and all other projects I'm working on. Which, hey, Manuclear Bomb, that's me. I've been Manu. You can find me covering The Lord of the Rings over at My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. I'm Brian, and I'm a new man. Alambe Nuevo. Shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. So until next time, remember to find a way when heavens divide. When heavens divide, I will see the choices within my